Well, this is a real treat for me. Thank you so much. I know you didn't invite me personally, but thank you so much for allowing Leslie and me to come and share in this worship service. Uh, we appreciate so much the blessing that you have been to my family for at least the last 11 years. Uh, Kevin and Rebecca have loved their ministry here. It's been a treat to come down on a regular basis. Rebecca, of course, didn't grow up in the... Um, Birmingham area. We, I was a pastor for 20 years in Dalton, Georgia, the carpet capital of the world, if you know that part of North Georgia. And uh, we have been uh, greatly blessed to then have come over to Birmingham where I've spent the last 17 years as the pastor of pastoral care in that behemoth of a church. And it's been quite a, a, a fascinating ride. And so in August, August 1st, I retired, and um, much this, amen, yes, uh, and it's been, a, it's been a terrific blessing, but thank you so much for um, uh, allowing me to share. We're going to uh, look ahead at, um, at Luke chapter 12, and if you want to turn there, this is, as you know, kind of a, a one-step sermon. I'm not in the part of a series, but we're going to be looking at a parable. In Luke chapter 12, verse 35. And uh, sometimes when you, while you're looking there, I'll just introduce, most of you know parables, you've studied them. They are some of the most beloved portions of Scripture. And uh, we find them in Matthew and Mark and Luke. But interestingly, John doesn't have any parables. But in, in these pa- passages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are a number of parables that teach practical lessons. And you say, well, Mark, how many are there? Well, it kind of depends on your definition, because some commentators define parables as little more than just an illustration. For instance, they say, the field is white unto harvest. That's kind of a parable. Or they might say, let your light shine before men, as it says in, in the Gospels, as Jesus said. They'll call that a parable, and if you count that as a parable, they're a bunch. 70, 71 parables in the New Testament. Most define it much smaller. In fact, most believe that a parable should be defined as just a, a meaningful message, a meaningful story, actually a story that uh, tells a biblical message. And if you count that, that's a very much smaller group. You know, a, a story like the Good Samaritan or like the Prodigal Son. And if you count parables that way, there's probably only about 30 or 31 of them. I prefer the definition that a parable is a fictional yet realistic simple story or account that illustrates a spiritual truth. And, you can, um, and with this, there are probably about 37 to 40, 41 parables. So if somebody, one of your children asks, how many parables are there? You can say with great wisdom and knowledge now. It depends how you define them. And, uh, but generally, most people think there are about 30, 31, uh, really 40, about 40 parables. And, uh, and we're just going to look at one of them today, and it's very practical. Uh, by this, um, it's found, as I said, in Luke chapter 12. And uh, what Jesus has been talking about, he's been talking about um, anxiety and dealing with anxiety in your life and my life. He's been talking about stewardship and how to properly manage our resources. For instance, earlier in the chapter, in verse 22, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you will eat or about 
nor about your body what you will put on, for life is more than food and body is more than clothing. And then verse down in verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then it's interesting that he goes almost right into this parable in verse 35. And it's our custom at Briarwood, and I'm going to ask you for the reading of God's word. Let's stand together as we read the words of Jesus for this morning's lesson. And Jesus wrote this, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Then in verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here ends the reading of God's Word for this morning. Thank you. You may be seated. I have a cousin who lives in uh, Richmond, Virginia, and he has a program on PBS radio, public broadcasting radio, called A Moment in Time. And uh, he gives daily, or maybe I think I guess five days a week, he gives a little historical, he's a historian, he's a professor of history, and he gives a little practical historical sketch of something that's happened in either American or world history. And uh, I, he's done it for years and years, but I, my mother is now 95 and I monitor all her emails and she was getting his regular email lessons each day, and I've started reading them. And uh, some of them are quite interesting. And then a couple of weeks ago, he told a very serious and tragic and sad story of the USS Thresher. Now, most of you are not old enough to remember that. The USS Thresher was a submarine commissioned back in 1961. It was one of the early nuclear submarines, and it was a new class of sub, a predatory class designed to hunt and destroy Soviet nuclear submarines. It could go deeper and faster uh, than any of its predecessors. It carried tor 23 torpedoes, which is a lot, by the way, and could cruise at 28 knots uh, down to a test depth, its maximum depth of, depth of almost uh, 1,300 feet below the surface of the water. It was a deadly, deadly package, but it had some catastrophic defects. On its final morning of life, the Thresher was being piloted by, a, uh, commanded rather, by a 36-year-old lieutenant commander by the name of John Harvey. He was a Naval Academy graduate, and he began his test depth about 200 miles off the coast of Massachusetts. Uh, it, it, by 9 o'clock, the article my, my cousin wrote, by 9 o'clock a.m., the vessel was approaching its test depth or approaching 1,000 feet as it had actually done a number of times before. Shortly afterwards, a pipe burst in the engine room 
and icy seawater poured into the uh, engine room. Harvey ordered the ballast tanks to be blown so the uh, ship might make it back to the surface. But uh, because they were so deep, all the um, exits for the air um, and the water uh, froze. And the ballast process uh, broke down. So he quickly turned on the auxiliary power, but it was quickly um, used up. And uh, the thresher gradually began to drift backwards and downwards into the ocean. The last ship's garbled message was, quote, exceeding test depth, 900 north. And that was it. 129 lives were lost. And my cousin writes this interesting commentary about this tragedy. He writes, political pressure to get those predator subs online was so high that naval contractors began to cut corners. Later investigators discovered that, and this is the key phrase for me, the nuclear power plant was built with very exacting standards, but the submarine constructed around it did not receive the same quality controls. Those new subs were expected to perform at a higher level to go faster and farther and deeper, but except for the power plant, the thresher was built using older technology, cheaper materials, and at a pace pace that sacrificed safety. And 129 lives were lost. And I listened to that uh, report, or I read that um, account by my cousin, and I remember thinking, what a wonderful picture of you and me as Christians. What a wonderful way we can be, quite unwittingly, undermined our faith. You see, in terms of our spiritual power plant, so to speak, we've often made very good decisions. We made the right decisions. First, we came to Christ. We understood our need for Christ and our sinfulness. And so perhaps at some age, it might have been six years old, it might have been 60 years old, we confessed our sin, we turned to Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we embraced Him as Lord of our lives. And that's the most critical decision a person can ever make, bar none. And many of you have done that. Maybe all of you have done that. Well, then you've also picked a good church, a good Bible-believing church, one that is standing strong for the gospel in the community. And you've also uh, may have a very high view of Scripture, which means you take the Bible very seriously. You read it. uh, You believe it. You say it's true. And uh, you've also perhaps... Engage regularly in Christian fellowship. You understand the importance of being with one another, of of coming into times of worship. And that serves as sort of your power plant, so to speak. But how often we Christians begin to ignore the rest of life. In other words, the submarine surrounding the power plant is not nearly um, equipped, is perhaps outmoded, is somewhat problematic in the Christian life, as we walk the Christian life. You know, uh, are we prepared every day to fend off the temptations that surround us? It's a good thing to think about. Or do we default 
to our own old perspectives, our old attitudes, our old priorities in relationships, our old use of time, our dealing with the world. Uh, Do we default back to that? And even though we have have made some incredibly important choices in terms of our relationship with God and His church and Christian fellowship, personally, are we a strong sub? Are we a strong ship? Are we a strong believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? And my question then would be, how do we upgrade our lives to keep up, so to speak, as, as God gives us his Holy Spirit, as his Holy Spirit works in us, as we have that cooperative arrangement, what part do we play in making the right decisions so that, 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 so that our initial decision for Christ, our coming to Christ and joining a good church, is kept up with by the rest of our lives. It's an important consideration. And in this passage, I think Jesus gives us some terrific help. And what he's going to do is give us, I believe, two assumptions and then two applications. Very simple. In, in, your, in your bulletin, if you've not noticed... I love to pass out these little uh, handouts. You're welcome to take notes. You can fold it and put it in your purse and throw it away, or you can make a paper airplane as long as you don't fly it in here. Whatever. This is for your help and uh, if you'd like to keep up. But uh, I want to first look at two assumptions in this parable that are very, very important. He says, number one, Christians are blessed servants. Christians are blessed servants. Now, when we talk about servants or bond servants or slaves, most of us don't imagine what it would have been like in the first century where servanthood or even bondage and slavery were very, very common. In fact, it was so common that perhaps of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, of Rome's 800,000 people, probably 400,000 of them, half of the population of Rome would have been considered bond servants or even slaves. And uh, there was always a concern in ancient cultures if, because there were so many slaves, if it, they might rebel and it could get out of hand. In fact, that did happen in the Roman Empire in Sicily that 70,000 uh, slaves rebelled on the island of Sicily and it took Rome four years to bring that back under control. There was always that problem. And then that was the world into which the church was birthed, into which the New Testament was written. And in the New Testament, slavery as an institution, it's interesting how the Bible deals with it. It wasn't so much directly attacked, but it was reordered and eventually undermined. It was reordered and undermined. For instance, the Apostle Paul uh, taught... uh, that spiritually speaking, in Christ, there is neither, neither slave nor free. Now, if you were a slave owner and you read the book to, of Galatians, you'd be shocked. You mean all of us are equal in Christ? And furthermore, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, Paul stresses that both master and slave are held equally accountable to God. The masters are called to be considered those under their care to be brothers and sisters in Christ. That just revolutionized the whole perspective that that world had toward uh, slaves and uh, toward bond servants. And Jesus uses these relationships 
and paints a picture of blessed servants who are loyal and dedicated and patient. And then he says something really remarkable. Just listen, listen to what he says. The master will renew his servant's service with service. And that's an amazing picture of our Lord, the creator of the universe. And we see that immediately fulfilled, of course, in what did Jesus do with his disciples? At the Last Supper, he not only fed them, but he knelt down and washed their feet. Because he was more than one to just lord it over his subjects. He was one to serve them, to walk with them as friends. Now, I can hardly get my hands around the concept that he who created the universe wants to call me a friend. I hope that staggers you when you realize how unworthy we are. He doesn't call me a friend because I deserve it, because I'm a nice guy, and after all, I'm a preacher, or I've done a good job with my life. It's simply by the grace of Christ that he has visited me with this salvation, and that has completely transformed. And you live, friends, in a society of people, many of whom who don't know Christ, would find that utterly absurd. That Jesus comes alongside and even serves us. He serves us with his death on the cross. He serves us with the giving of his Holy Spirit, of with taking care of and putting up with us day after day after day, not because we've earned it, but we are exceedingly blessed servants. Did you ever see the, the television show Downton Abbey? Did you all watch Downton Abbey? Unless you lived under a rock for the past five years, you have no idea. Downton Abbey, of course, was the story of the Crawleys, a British aristocratic family that lived in a big mansion called, or a small castle called Downton Abbey. And it's a fascinating story and a charming story of the life of the, um, of the family who lived on the top two or three floors. And it was also a story of all the servants that lived on the bottom two or three floors and their interaction over a period of time in the early 20th century. Very, very popular. Imagine, for those of you who've watched it, that the Crawleys suddenly decide and announce to all the servants, we're going to change places. We want y'all to move upstairs. Those bedrooms, all those possessions, all those luxuries are going to be yours. And we're going to move to the basement. And we're going to take care of you every day of your lives until you die. You know how absurd that would sound? I mean, the Crawleys would, um, it utterly, it would, of course, it'd blow the whole show. It wouldn't even, but it would be absurd especially in British aristocratic culture, to ever imagine that the servants would be served by the masters. But that's precisely what Jesus has done for us. He's come alongside us, called us his friend, and says, follow me. It's a remarkable thing. And you and I, I don't care how much money you've got in the bank. I don't care how stressful it is at work. I don't care how how your losses have mounted up. You can say, I am the most blessed of servants. Because Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And when we are arranging the priorities of our life, this is an assumption that's very, very important. That first assumption that we are blessed servants. But secondly, the second assumption 
Jesus says, is that he, Jesus, will return in our lifetime. People have speculated about when Jesus is going to return since the first time he left. And there have been preachers ad nauseum who come along and said, we figured it out. It's going to be on a certain date at a certain time in a certain place. We have looked at the numbers in the Bible. We've looked at the events of the Bible. We've looked at the circumstances. And we know the time and date. And it's ludicrous because even Jesus said no one knows. He didn't know when Jesus returned. And I would say if someone has a, well, I don't want to get in trouble, but if someone has as a priority of their ministry to declare to you when Jesus is going to return, you turn away and walk away. Because that man or woman is deceived, even pursuing it. Jesus said, we will not know. So what do you mean, Mark, that Jesus will return in our lifetime? We naturally think of the master returning as the second coming, but not necessarily. Matthew Henry, the commentator, uh, said about verse 38, he says, regarding unbelievers, his coming to us at our death is uncertain. To many, it will be a great surprise. In pastoral care, I used a passage out of John chapter 14, which has been used throughout the centuries in the early church at funerals. What does it say? If I go, Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So in a sense, Jesus is going to return at the end of your life. You don't know when. You don't know what will be the circumstances where you'll be driving out on I-65 or whether you'll be in a hospital room or perhaps a palliative care unit. We have no idea. But make no mistake, you won't be stepping out into eternity by yourself. You'll be stepping into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come and take you to be where he is. And that's an astonishing blessing. And it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. We just don't know when. Maurice Rawlings in his book To Hell and Back said, quote, Man has been the only creature made aware that he must die, and yet he refuses to believe it until the last moment when he's usually unprepared. So he writes, Today is the day to be prepared. And that's a second reality that ought to guide and instruct my life around the perfect PowerPoint of some of the decisions I've made, the perfect um, engine room, if you will. Now, I don't have a nuclear power plant in my body, but I've made some good decisions to follow Christ, to be a part of a good church. But what about the rest of my life? Well, I need to remember every day these two assumptions, that I am a blessed, blessed servant, far more than especially my non-Christian friends, and also that Jesus is going to return and take me to be with himself. I don't know when. It could be before today, the end of today. We have no idea. But then Jesus turns to this parable specifically where he makes two applications. And here the coming of the master is expected, maybe in the uh, second or third watch of the night. As you know, in Roman chronology, the Romans spoke of four watches of the night. And almost certainly in a big wedding, the master who had, who had left perhaps with his wife, even his children, to go to this uh, maybe a very large affair in, in ancient Israel, small 
uh, uh, even in small villages, weddings were big deals. Sometimes they were the biggest social events on the calendar in a given year. Families would often spend vast amounts of money to marry off their daughter or to, to provide a wife for their son. And uh, it was uh, a big affair. So if you're invited to a wedding, you know, we have so many other things going on. Well, they didn't in that day nearly as much. So weddings were very big. And certainly they wouldn't come back in the first watch of the night, which was from 6 to 9 o'clock. And they might come back during the second watch in the night, which was about 9 o'clock to midnight. But that's probably not going to happen either. More than likely, they're going to come back in the third watch of the night. That's between midnight and 3 a.m. And by then, the servants have been been at home. They have a full day of work behind them, and they're tired. Normally, they're asleep by that time. They may go to bed with the sun, the sunset. But they're having to stay up because the master and his family is out. And the temptation to sleep could be profound. And for such a key event on the social calendar, they would be expected to stay awake, to keep the fires burning, literally, to, so that when the master came home, they would be able, no doubt with a lot of energy and enthusiasm, they might want to sit up and eat some more. And the servants are expected to be ready, no matter when the master returned. For, to, for the master to show up and them to be asleep and the house to be dark and they knock on the door. You know, they wouldn't call ahead. They didn't have cell phones. You might not even know they're coming till you hear that knock on the door or until the door opens. And what a shame if the house was dark and you're stumbling over the furniture to get try to relight, uh, relight the lights. It would be seen as an inexcusable blunder. And, she, and they all grip that. I mean, you know, Jesus is talking to a society that everybody in the back, you're, nobody here is nodding. In that day, when they heard Jesus, Jesus message, they were going, yeah, yeah, oh, I can't imagine. Oh, I'd be mortified if I was that servant. And um, the point is intensified, actually, in verse 39, when Jesus switches gears, as is customary in some oriental imagery, to a thief says, if the wedding illustration doesn't grab you, then what about going to sleep and a thief breaks in because of your negligence? Again, everybody would be mortified. And so uh, Jesus is um, saying everybody needs to be ready to meet their maker. And then he gives the two applications. He says, be dressed for action. Two things. One is to be dressed for action. You know the old King James, have your loins girded. And what they're talking about is that people in that day, men and women, wore long robes with a belt around their waist. And what they would do when time of work, they would take the bottom of that robe and pull it up a little bit, not indecently, and stuff it into the belt so that they could be more active with their legs and their chores and doing things. Uh, So Jesus here is using that illustration and what's he warning them what is he warning us he says basically beware of loose robes my friends you've got a lot of loose robes in your life i can promise you you've got a lot of loose robes that if not taken care of can cause you to stumble and maybe stumble badly and i i I don't want to get too fanciful here but what are some of those loose robes well one would be the things of the world sometimes the good things of the world 
We are blessed in so many ways, in marriages, in careers, and with families and possessions. We have more affluence than the rest of the world can hardly imagine. I heard a missionary once say, when uh, foreigners come to America, you know what shocks them the most? It isn't the wealth of the wealthy, it's the wealth of the poor that shock people from overseas. What we call poor is hilarious to people in the world. In fact, I once read that 90, that, uh, that our poverty line in American society is a higher income than about 95% of the rest of the world. It's unbelievable. You live, even if you are of modest means in America, you live with the kind of affluence that's staggering to most people in the world. We are so immersed in our materialism, and I am too, we don't even know it. And so what we find is the things of this world, even the good things, can rather us manage them, they begin to manage us. And you just think about how your possessions dominate your lives and can become idols. And so I would ask the question, do we display these robes of the things of the world so that they get in the way? That's something we've got to constantly be aware of. One of the loose robes are the things of this world. Another one of the loose robes are the delights of the flesh. And the delights of the flesh aren't all bad. I'm talking about our senses, what we see and taste and touch and smell and hear from from what we derive spiritual pleasure. And again, some of those things can be terribly distracting. Uh, They manage us rather than us manage them. You know, and it's reduced down to many people who live by the simple motto, I'm going to do what makes me feel good. If it doesn't make me feel good, I'm not going to do it. And when Christians slip into that mentality, it can be devastating to the Christian life. The things of this world, the delights of the flesh, and then, of course, the temptations of Satan. And this is a darker area, and it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. When Jesus was tempted, he wasn't tempted by bad things. He was tempted by the promise of food by Satan, by the promise of reputation, of power and authority. And Satan said, Jesus, I'll give you all this if you'll just follow me. Well, he was asking Jesus to short-circuit God's way of blessing us and go after the world's or his own way of blessing us. It's not the blessings that we were to sin, but it's the source. And you and I need to be very careful when we look enviously at others in the world who might have things that we don't have. And God knows our needs. Let's be thankful for what God has given us and enjoy that relationship because we're certainly not going to take any of it with us when Jesus returns. And that will be a shock to many. The temptations, do we cling to these robes so that we begin to serve other gods. Jesus said, be dressed for action. Be poised. Every single day, you and I step into an arena of spiritual battle every single day. Let's be ready every day. And then, secondly, Jesus says, and the obvious one, keep your lamps burning. Keep the lights. That was the the admonition to those servants. Don't let the candles go out around the house. Keep the lights burning. And that means replenishing the little oil lamps or perhaps pulling out another candle and putting it and lighting it. Here, lamp refers to what illumines our way in the dark. 
you know, it's, it'd be so embarrassing for the master to come up and there's a window or two and he says, it looks pretty dark in there. And when they bang on the door, you hear a bunch of stumbling and furniture falling over and, and it would be a really, really sad situation. Uh, why do we stumble? Well, what illumines our way? Firstly, it's God's word. God's word illumines our way. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. And I promise you, my pastor can't do this for me. My wife can't do this for me. My children can't do this for me. But I need to marinate my mind with God's word on a regular basis. doesn't need to sit on the coffee table. It needs to be an integral part of my mind every day. And if you're only getting a good dosage of God's word when you come here on Sunday morning, that's not enough. You're on a starvation diet, I promise you. But as you marinate your mind every day, what illumines our way is God's word. And secondly, persistent prayer. And I will say very quickly, this I do battle with. You know, you would think talking to a loving Savior and my Heavenly Father would be easy. And when I'm in trouble, it's pretty easy. But... uh, It needs to be something that I carry on. Even I heard one man say flash prayers of sort of a constant communication with God. Not only meaningful prayer that aims for certain goals, but daily interaction with God in the spirit of prayer. Luke said, or Jesus said in Luke 18.1, well, Luke's commentary, and he, that is Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I promise you, That's why we have so many Christians today that are discouraged, that think that the world's near an end, and rightly concerned about our nation, about our freedoms, about the economy. Because Jesus said it is persistent prayer that causes us not to lose heart. You're losing heart? You need to be careful. But persistent prayer, God's word, and then certainly authentic fellowship with other believers is a way of keeping our lamps burning. Those, those slaves, those bond servants in the house, one way they'd stay awake, keep the other servants awake. We're going to play cards. We're going to do stuff. We're going to do whatever we can. Wake up, wake up, you know, you're dozing off. And likewise, you and I need the, the abundance of Christian fellowship where a brother or sister can come along and walk with us and encourage us, and we can do that to them in the midst of difficulty. In Acts chapter 2, what a powerful passage for the church. Verse 42, And they, that is the members of the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. What a great statement. The breaking of bread no doubt included the Lord's Supper, but it might have been eating together on many occasions as well. And uh, that's where you and I need to keep our lamps burning, to keep dressed for action so that we're prepared for what's going to be happening every single day. You know, one of my favorite speakers, especially back in college and as a young adult, uh, is Stuart Briscoe. Some of you may know who he is. He was a, a British pastor who came and lived and ministered in America. And he wrote this shortly after he arrived and settled in the United States. He said, when I moved to the United States, I was impressed with the number of total strangers who visited my home to wish me well and to sell me insurance. (laughs) 
He said, one day my visitor was talking about the necessity to be prudent in the preparation for all possibilities. He said, quote, if something should happen to you, Mr. Briscoe, and I interrupted him and said, please don't say that, it upsets me. And he was a little startled, but tried again. But with all due respect, sir, we must be ready if something should happen to us. And I cut in and said, don't say that. He looked totally bewildered and said, I don't understand what I said to upset you. And Briscoe said, then I'll tell you, I replied. It upsets me that you talk about life's only certainty as if it's a possibility. (laughs) Death is not a possibility. It's a certainty. You don't say if, you say when, whenever death is the subject. If I die... It's not an if. It's when. And it's when I'm going to step into the presence of the Lord Jesus. And he will take me home. Regarding the death, regarding Jesus' return at death, I love the words of Jim Elliott, a young, this guy was 20, what, 25 years old, 25, 26 years old. And he had this, he used to say, when it comes time to die, make sure that's all you have to do. (laughs) What a great statement. When it comes time to die, make sure that's all you have to do. And you know, one of the greatest indicators to me that Jesus' is second coming and I'm, is going to be unexpected, whether it's at my death or whether it's in um, his second return with all the, uh, the angels, you know what assures me how unexpected it will be is the fact that the first one was unexpected. Besides Simeon and Anna and a bunch of wise men, No one expected Jesus to show up. And that's the way it's going to be. But I hope you and I, though we might be a bit startled, will be ready when that time comes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you give us this privilege of knowing what's about to happen. And it may be about to happen far more than we can possibly imagine. And I ask that you will use us. I thank you for this precious church and their light and witness in the community, but also for the individual believers here who go out through the community into various jobs and schools and neighborhoods. Help each one of us to serve you as a witness to the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.